You're listening to the DNB Supply Show podcast, your number one resource for living the country lifestyle. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, coming to you from my place in the country to yours. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the D&B Supply Radio Show. This is your host, Matt Breckwald, and it is great to have you back again. Well, here we are. Hunting season is underway in Oregon. Bow season's just getting ready to close down. Sage grouse is over, but rifle season for deer and elk and, of course, waterfowl and upland game and all of that is just getting ready to kick off. And every year there are changes. Every year there are questions that we don't quite know the answers to. And so today uh, we're going to have on Lieutenant Tim Schwartz from the Oregon State Police. And he supervises everything east of the Cascades when it comes to fish and wildlife. So he's going to talk to us about some changes that are going on both this year and coming up in 2019 and clarify some really commonly asked about laws, rules, and regulations when we all go out into the field and we all enjoy our heritage and we enjoy getting out there and doing some hunting and exploring the great outdoors and enjoying wildlife. So we'll have that coming up for you here in just a moment. Lieutenant Schwartz, thank you so much for coming on and joining me again today. You bet. Well, I do appreciate uh, Oregon State Police's willingness to always come on and help educate us. And, you know, there's a lot of things out there that uh, are in the law that not we, we don't necessarily know. So I think it's always good to talk with somebody and kind of get clarification on those things before we head out on the roads or head out into the field. So I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's start off like this. Uh, could you give us just a brief introduction of you? Where have you worked in the state of Oregon? How long have you been with the Oregon State Police? And, and what do you do now? You bet. So I started with OSP in 2006. I was stationed out of Astoria. And I actually ran our uh, offshore patrol vessel there for about three years. Then I transferred over to uh, St. Helens, the Ventry headquarters, where I worked as a program lieutenant in the fishery section. And now I'm currently over in Eastern Oregon. Well, I supervise Eastern Oregon, I should say, the East region. I'm uh-huh. based out of Bend and supervise troopers and sergeants east of the Cascades, except for Lake and Klamath counties. Well, what a fascinating career. You know, working for the state of Oregon, you really can do it all. Everything from the from the high desert down near here, near uh, southeastern Oregon to the beautiful mountains in northeastern and the coast like you did over in Astoria. It's really an incredible opportunity. Yeah, it is. It's been a, an awesome opportunity, actually, just to... The variety in work to have worked out on the ocean you'll be out there in july or august when it's just gorgeous and then uh, to be able to come over here and work a totally different landscape and different species so yeah it's been pretty cool now i wanted to ask you before we got into new hunting regulations and what hunting's going to look like in oregon this year and in 2019 before we jump into that i wanted to ask you to help everybody understand how it works in the state of oregon just because of my previous law enforcement experience I've always found it interesting how the state police is integrated with conservation work and fish and wildlife work in Oregon. How does that all kind of come together and how does that work? So yeah, state police, uh, well, Oregon is, is different than I think pretty much all the other states other than Alaska in that the state police is tasked with enforcing the fish and wildlife and laws, the natural resource laws of the state. So basically, we are Oregon's version of a game warden. We have a division of the state police, it's fish and wildlife division. We have about 120 members statewide. And uh, we are we are different than conservation officers also that, you know, we have full law enforcement authority. So when we're out in the woods working big game season or whatever it is, if we come across any other kind of crime, we can deal with that and have the authority to do so. So if somebody wants to work fish and game and they want to do it in Oregon, do they necessarily pursue educational opportunities that kind of gear them towards that? Or is it just a matter of becoming a, a state trooper and then trying to transfer into that division? How does that all work? 
It depends on experience. We have many members within the division that have degrees in wildlife management or biology. We have folks that have come over from the sheriff's department that worked at marine deputies. We've also had folks that have joined the OSB, you know, and worked the road, worked in the patrol side of things for several years and transferred over to Fish and Wildlife, obviously based upon experience. Well, thanks for taking the time to kind of explain that. It is it is unique, I guess, except for compared to Alaska, but uh, it's a fascinating way of doing things. So there are some new laws and updates coming up for 2019 that we want to tell everybody about and also just kind of brief everybody on this hunting season. I mean, hunting season is upon us. So what's that look like for you? Do, do you get your people kind of ramped up and ready to go uh, when hunting season is rolling up on us like this? Oh, yeah. For, for the east side of the Oregon, especially, big game seasons are our busiest time of the year. So obviously we're in archery season now. That closes on uh, Sunday, I believe. That's been going for three or four weeks. And So, yeah, we gear up for that. We have operations in place and operational planning, making sure that we're covering where we need to cover and work where we need to work. And that extends throughout our, our rifle seasons. Uh, those come up here in the, the end of the month, actually here another week and a half or so. We'll have our rifle deer season that kicks off. So Eastern Oregon for mule deer, it's pretty much all controlled hunts. So there's different tag numbers for each unit. And, and some of those units are trophy units. And some of them are quite busy with more tags or permits issued for those areas. So it's kind of similar with, with the rifle elk seasons as well. So those are our big three. So yeah, right now the guys are hitting it hard. We're fielding a lot of cases and initiated a lot of investigations for unlawful taking and, and other violations. Hey, you, you mentioned trophy units. When you say trophy unit, what are you referring to there? So we have some units that have very limited tags. And so a better opportunity to, you know, shoot a, a trophy class animal mm-hmm. just because there's less people in there and there's less taking that occurs or harvest. So uh, if somebody's looking for a big bull or a big buck or something like that, they're applying for tags in those units. Yep. Yep. And some of those are, I mean, take several years to get drawn for some of those hunts. So oh, okay. once they do draw some of those trophy hunts, yeah, it's rare and uh, they got a great chance of shooting some some really nice animals. So does that mean that in Oregon you're on a bonus point type system? Yeah, it's a preference point. So every year you can uh, purchase preference points that obviously increase your odds and those those stack up year to year to year. So some units, you know, it might take, you know, four points to draw. Some units might take six or seven. Mm -hmm. Some of our trophy units might take, you know, upwards of 10 to 14. Okay. So a lot of years waiting waiting. (laughs) to be able to years for that. Well, let's do this. I've got to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, let's get into some of the specifics of laws that are being updated and changed, things like that. Okay. Say you were to ride off into the sunset. Ideally, what kind of boots and clothes would you be wearing? For horseback riders of all styles, nothing beats the look and performance of Ariat. Available at DMB Supply. Everyone from famous rodeo cowboys to country music legends to equestrian Olympians. Turn to Ariat with confidence. You can count on them too. Think of Ariat as your ultimate riding companion for the life and times in the West. When you need to better outfit your ride with Ariat, stop by your favorite DMB Supply. Are you ready for a steal? Then stop by DNB to pick up steel power tools. German engineered, these power players offer quality that never quits. Like the Steel MS-271 Farm Boss Chainsaw. Available for just $429.95 with a 20-inch bar and chain. Show your project list who's boss and leave it in your sawdust. With legendary chainsaws, dependable trimmers, forceful blowers, and epic tools of the trade, steel powers through anything. Grab a steel at your favorite D&B supply. All right, Lieutenant Schwartz. Well, now that we're back, let's talk about some of the things that are being updated or maybe things that will be changing once uh, 2019 rolls around. 
we kind of talked already about a few of the different things, but there's there's a couple laws involving bow hunting that are going to be coming into play. Can you talk to about those? Yeah. So the first of all, so these just these rules or regulations were just adopted by the commission last Friday. So they will go into effect January 1st of 2019. So want to make that clear is everything that's currently you know in the books right now is still mm-hmm. through the end of the year. So for archery, there was one that was passed regarding mechanical broadheads in the past. They were unlawful. You had to have a fixed blade broadhead. So they broadened that to allow the use of mechanical broadheads. And then the, the remaining regulations associated with broadheads will remain the same. The other one, or the second one, was a standardized draw weight for all big game animals. So in the past, if you wanted to hunt deer, for example, there was a minimum of 40-pound draw weight. And for elk, there was a minimum of 50-pound draw weight. So they standardized that and said 40 pounds across the board for all big game animals. So that should really help, you know, maybe your youth or somebody who didn't have the ability to uh, draw back a 50-pound bow. So let me ask you about it, about these two really quick, and we'll, we'll kind of go in reverse. So with the draw weights, why the discrepancy? Why do they want to have a minimum draw weight? How does that impact uh, how things work out in the field? So for like elk with that 50-pound draw weight, obviously it's a bigger animal. And with a theory that, you know, with more poundage, that obviously the arrow would, you know, fly better and maybe have a better chance of cleanly killing the animal. Mm-hmm. And same with the 40-pound minimum draw weight. We don't want people out there shooting, you know, a 30, 20-pound bow that might not have the trajectory or the energy to cleanly and safely kill the animal. Got it. So it's really about taking care of things, but doing things, you know, in the most painless fashion and the, and the quickest kill to, to the big animals we're hunting with both. Correct. Yeah, and, that, and with that previous draw weight, I mean, if a person, so our archery deer and elk seasons are pretty much at the same time, except for some controlled hunts. So you can go out and hunt deer and elk at the same time with your bow. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if it may be your use and you, you can only, you know, pull back a 40-pound bow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a limited opportunity to be able to hunt elk at the same time. So with this standardized weight, it should, it should really help out those that, uh, you know, can't make that 50-pound draw pull. Now, regarding the broadheads, uh, fixed blade versus mechanical, what is the difference? I'm not a bow hunter, so I'm learning right here. So the fixed blade is, is well, basically just that. It's fixed. It's attached to the, to the arrow shaft, and, um, you know, it is what it is. Mechanical ones, obviously, they can expand. There, there's dozens and dozens of mechanical broadheads on the market. There's, there's quite a lot to choose from. Typically, they have a better flight pattern. Mm-hmm. I haven't used them myself, obviously, because they've been unlawful. But I've heard they have a better flight pattern, and um, typically how they work is when they strike a target, blades will expand out mm-hmm. to enlarge the broadhead and so on. So basically it helps with flight, and then when it strikes, it's going to open up to a typical, almost what a broad, a fixed broadhead would look like. And I'm sorry, the law starting in 2019 is going to allow those, or, or is they're Correct. still going to be prohibited? Nope, they're going to be allowed. All right, so the people have that to look forward to coming up in 2019. Exactly. Okay, well, great. Right. All right, well, let's talk about scopes for a second. I know that you said there's some stuff coming up with that as well. Yeah, so they broaden language. You know, with technology changes, we're seeing more and more things associated with scopes and hunting in general. In the past, we had some regulation in there that was not too specific, and so there was interpretation that scopes that had range-finding ability were lawful. And so they basically just rewrote that language or added some language to specifically clarify that range finding scopes or scopes that receive information from a range finder, that those things are illegal. So a couple things on that. It's always interesting how things work with the law, but when the, when the law is written, if it's somewhat vague, 
and there's room for interpretation, then people can make the argument that this is okay. This is what's written here. And whenever that happens, the legislature can just go back and they kind of rewrite or clarify and change the wording to make it very clear. Is that is that kind of what went on here? Yep. That's Yeah, pretty much went on. Obviously, you know, the public weighs in on that stuff and, and uh, the commission, ODF&W, listens to that. And, mm-hmm. You know, still considering the need for, you know, managing wildlife and making sure that, you know, there's fair chase out there. But, uh, yeah, they'll update language routinely. This was a bigger one because, like you said, uh, it was open to interpretation, which makes it difficult for enforcement. Mm -hmm. You know, if we have a a specific rule or, you know, a generalized rule that's, you know, open to interpretation, it makes our job a lot more difficult. Yeah, because, uh, you know, two people read the exact same thing and see it two different ways. Exactly. Yeah. And then you to see that through the court system as well, which is a large part of, of what we do. So yeah, pretty difficult to deal with when, when it's a, a general rule or mm-hmm. not too specific. You know, the issue of fair chase is always interesting to kind of discuss as well. So if you do allow scopes that say have range finding abilities, how does that impact the concept of fair chase? Well, I think with technology, I, I've heard that there is a new application that uh, can be Bluetoothed with the scope. And, and a cell phone. So pretty interesting. I mean, just technology is getting so broad and we want to make sure that it's, it's still sport, I guess, basically. Yeah. When you have all this, you know, technology and range finding scopes, I think it takes away from that sporting side of hunting. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously your projections are the, you know, the commission's projections every year are based on hunter success rates and technology, if, if everything was allowed to be used, it could dramatically increase those success rates and that would really alter uh, the amount of tags that could be issued and things like that, I would assume. Yeah, very much so. And, and the commission process with the public input, I mean, like for example, the mechanical broadheads, that was something that was really pushed by the sporting groups and the public and they wanted that and, and the commission listened to them. Mm-hmm. Um, with the range finding scopes, I think the vast majority of the hunters out there were, you know, not supporting it either. So... And along the same lines with this technology and with scopes, uh, there's been some language written about infrared and night vision. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, previously we had regulations and still do that uh, made it unlawful to hunt with the aid of night vision equipment or infrared. So that was another rule that the commission uh, approved. They expanded that to include hunting, locating, or scouting for the purpose of hunting. Mm-hmm. So uh, the thought is, you know, night vision goggles, you could go out maybe, you know, four o'clock in the morning and go out and scout around and locate, you know, maybe a bull or a buck or whatever you're hunting mm-hmm. and then come back later in the day when it's maybe legal hunting hours and then take that buck. So that's another one that, you know, we haven't dealt with in the past. So we'll, we'll be able to see how that one kind of turns out this next fall in 2019. But anyway, yeah, it just expanded that to, uh, to again, make that unlawful to scout or locate for the purpose of hunting. Interesting. I just saw something advertised just the other day that was infrared. And of course, that's how they were advertising it, you know, looking into the woods and being able to identify heat signatures or something like that from animals and and locate where they're at. So you guys are right on top of that with that technology coming out, sounds like. Yep. And I do want to add that there's an exemption there for trail cameras. I forgot to mention that. Okay. Obviously, some trail cameras will use infrared at night to be able to take pictures and those are still going to be lawful. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, we've got even more updates and things to talk about and lots of interesting stuff with hunting season coming up. Okay. Why am I wearing a lab coat and standing in your lawn? Because I'm a bare advanced lawn care scientist, and I'm about to revolutionize the way you control lawn weeds. Because with bare advanced season-long weed control for lawns, you get the only spray that kills listed broadleaf lawn weeds, then creates a barrier below to prevent new weeds for up to six months. One application is all it takes. 
Count on Bear Advance to put revolutionary science right in your hands. Get more from the Blue Bottle. Always read and follow label instructions. We love George Strait for more than his music. After 56 number one singles, George is still a family man and a real cowboy. That's why we love him, and that's why he wears nothing but Wrangler. The George Strait Cowboy Cut Collection by Wrangler has a huge selection of styles a cowboy can be comfortable wearing anywhere. So head to your favorite D&B supply and try the George Strait Cowboy Cut Collection by Wrangler. Long live cowboys. All right. Well, Lieutenant Schwartz, let's keep going with some of these changes. We had talked about proof of sex, and there's a little bit, uh, some clarifying language there as well. Yeah, there was another option there. So we have some, it's pretty much the same, uh, the requirement for proof of sex. You know, for an antler list, you're going to have to have, excuse me there, for a female, have to have the scalp, including eyes and ears for uh, bulls, bucks, things like that. Obviously, mm-hmm. the antlers. The one thing that was added well, it had to do with whitetail or uh, mule deer only hunts. Mm-hmm. where the person is required to bring out the tail of that animal. So we can obviously clarify that, oh, okay. yes, it was a whitetail, or yes, it was a mule deer. So. Not too much change there, but a little bit added there. Are you seeing, a, now that that comes up, are you seeing an influx of whitetails into Oregon? Are those numbers going up? I don't know for sure if they're going up. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer that. I know from a personal experience, I'm starting to see more up northeast. Mm-hmm. as well as over uh, in the Snake River unit, which is right along Hell's Canyon. But okay. Overall, yeah, I'm not not quite sure. I've always been interested in that, seeing how that, that population of that species of deer is spreading out throughout Idaho, where I live, and it's interesting to see them go, because once they get established, uh, you see whitetails all over, it seems like. Yeah, they do They do expand pretty quickly. So you've got to bring the tail out if you if you have a species-specific hunt so you can make sure. I mean, we're talking like if you've boned out the meat or something like that. If you've got the skin still on the carcass, then it's a moot point. Right. Yep, exactly. You know, a lot of hunters pack in quite a ways. I do so myself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we will quarter out or bone out the animal. So we want to make sure that obviously that a person that's boning out an animal, especially for like an antlerless-only hunt, that they're bringing out something for us to be able to look at to know that, yes, this was an antlerless or yes, this was a buck or what species it was. On an antlerless hunt, if you're boning the animal out, I've read in the past, but this has been over in Idaho, that um, you would have to bring the vulva out uh, as identification of this of the sex or the gender. But in Oregon, you can do it still with the skull cap. Right. Yep. There's two options. Okay. So you can bring out the organs like you were talking about attached mm-hmm. to you know a portion of the meat, a, a quarter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you can bring out the animal's head or scalp from the eyes to the ears. Okay. Females and, and like I said, the antlers. So it gives you an option, which I, which you know I think is really good for the hunters out there. Yeah. If they want to be able to attach that organ and, and do it that way instead of carrying out the scalp or part of the head and so on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the options are good. I think. All right. Well, one thing that's that's going on all over the West that uh, has become a concern over here in Idaho, of course, and, and it sounds like it is in Oregon as well, is chronic wasting disease or CWD. How is that impacting laws and regulations in Oregon? Well, obviously, Oregon, we're doing our best to keep that out of the state. We've had regulations in the past where uh, there was parts bans to bring those or transport those parts within Oregon. And basically, it was unlawful to transport parts of those animals uh, from states with documented CWD. Mm-hmm. And in the regulations, we've either listed those out or shown maps of those states. Um, so as, as a more of an effort to increase the chances of that coming in, or I'm sorry, decrease the chances <laughs> right. of that coming into Oregon. They've expanded that to include transportation from any other state or country. Okay, I need to clarify that for myself. So currently, there's no transport of any 
meat or horns or anything like that from other states into Oregon? Did I understand that right or did I miss that? No, specific parts. So there's a parts band like the spinal column. Uh-huh. And this is just for cervids. This okay. is just for cervids, deer, elk, caribou, things like that. So it was unlawful to bring the brain tissue, uh, the head, unless it was um, caped out meat that wasn't either cut or removed from the bone or wrapped. Those things were unlawful to transport an organ from a state that had documented CWD. Okay. So, so they- you can still obviously bring the antlers, uh, meat, as long as it's removed from the bone. Really want to avoid having the brain tissue, anything associated with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the spinal column, bones, and things like that where we know CWD can be spread. Okay. So the law was changed. Just say, forget about trying to figure out which states it's banned coming from. We're just saying all states, all countries don't bring these parts exactly. in. Okay. Now, let me ask exactly, you, yep. somebody goes up to Alaska or they go up to British Columbia or something like that. They've got a trophy hunt. They want to, you know, a caribou or a moose or something like that. And they're going to have it mounted. They want to bring it back to their home in Oregon. Uh, is there an exemption or is there a way once the, once the taxidermy has taken place and things like that, that that's all right? Oh yeah, that's perfectly fine. And even from the other states, as long as it's caped out, uh, most guys are going to get head mounts. We'll want to get that cape off fairly quickly uh-huh. anyway. Uh-huh. So it's usually not an issue. But, yeah, they can cape it out, bring the antlers back, uh, have a taxidermist do it locally. If they're you know confident enough to be able to cape it out themselves, they can still bring that hide mm-hmm. and that cape along with the antlers back in. We just, we just want to avoid that, that brain tissue and things like that. So I, I think that brings up the issue then of a European mount. What if somebody wants to do just a, like a European-style skull mount? Yep, you're going to have to have it cleaned off and all that tissue, brain tissue, removed from that skull uh, prior to transporting it into Oregon. Okay, let's take another break. When we come back, let's shift gears a little bit away from big game and some other species we're going to be hunting this this fall. Okay. Things are heating up around here at D&B. You'll see why when you check out our wide selection of high-performance stoves from Harman, Quadrifier, and Heatilator EcoChoice. These classic pellet and wood-burning stoves light up your hearth and home. They give you even heat and easy maintenance with craftsmanship that stands the test of time and really stands out. So swing on by D&B Supply and see how Harman, Quadrifier, and Heatilator EcoChoice stoves can warm up your home. What's on the grill? That's the ultimate summertime question. And you can make the answer extra special with a wood-fired Traeger grill at D&B Supply. Pure hardwood is the fuel for Traeger's signature flavor. It lets you grill, smoke, baste, roast, braise, or barbecue hot and fast or low and slow with perfect results every time. Versatile, consistent, and convenient. With a Traeger, you just set it and forget it. Master the taste of summer and pick up your Traeger grill at your favorite DMB supply. All right, Lieutenant Schwartz. Well, uh, as we transition away from from big game and talk about a couple animals, one more thing on preference points. I know you had a big change that we wanted to talk about, and I almost glossed over it uh, regarding preference points. What's going on there? Yeah, so something that's coming on, I don't know for sure if it's passed through the commission yet, but I, I expect it to be shortly, is in the past we've had a tip program, which is a turn-in poachers program. And basically, if, if somebody's, you know, hears of information that unlawful activity, unlawful taking mm-hmm. of animals or, or poaching, they can turn that person in and get and call into the tip line. And if that that information leads to arrest of the person, the person that turned them in can be eligible for uh, a reward. I think it's 250 or $500, depending on what the information or species was related to. What is being proposed or what may have already passed is preference points in lieu of those rewards. So I mentioned before that preference points, you know, you purchase them every year and they can build up 
well, with this, the opportunity is to, you know, get a lot of preference points immediately with, with turning somebody in when it leads to a criminal arrest. And I think it's for deer and things like that. I think it's four preference points. I think if it involves oh, wow. an antelope or uh, maybe a big horn or something like that, it could be preference points. So that should really help us in getting information from the public. And uh, most folks that hunt big game, you know, those preference points are like gold. And to have the opportunity to get, you know, four or five of them, depending with turning, you know, providing information, which leads to arrest is a pretty good opportunity for them. Wow. So obviously the state legislature and the, the commission, they believe that people are going to be more motivated to report these things for, for these preference points than they are for just cold, hard cash. Right. Yep. And this is another one of those things that has been pushed heavily by the public, the hunting public, uh, sporting groups. They've wanted this for quite a while. So definitely will help in getting information. I think it will lead to a lot more information for us. That's really interesting. So what does it cost to purchase a preference point in Oregon? Do you know that? I think the application this year, don't quote me on this, but I think it was 7 or $9. I can't remember. Oh, okay. I should know. I just paid for them myself a <laughs> few months ago. So it's so not... every time you apply for, so, you know, for deer, you uh-huh. want to get a preference point, and 7 bucks for elk, same thing, so on and so forth. So it's not a one-to-one monetarily. I mean, obviously, a $500 or a $250 reward is a lot more valuable monetarily than a $9 preference point. But boy, the time that you're making up by getting these points all at once, if you do the right thing and you report that type of deal, uh, that's a big deal. Oh, yeah. And then also, one thing I forgot to mention associated with that is if the information involves the taking, which it has to of like an elk, for example, well, Mm -hmm. let's say that person that they're reporting on has also killed a deer and another elk, those preference points can be stacked. Now, you wouldn't get four on four on four, but you would get four and then additional one if it involved the taking of another animal. You get Mm -hmm. an additional preference point if it involved the taking of three animals. So, that I think is really valuable and will lead to uh, really good information for us and, and maybe generate some cases that we can investigate, you know, for those folks that are really going, those, the poachers is what we mm-hmm. call them, you know, right. the folks that are going out and taking multiple animals unlawfully, maybe sure. they're doing it out of season at night, uh, you name it. So yeah, spotlighting, stuff like that. Interesting. So Correct. that's in effect now or that's another 2019 law? That would probably be in 2019. All right. Well, I can tell you that uh, I'm not a poacher. But uh, there was one time, and this is over in Idaho, I w- I'm a horrible hunter, and I pulled up in the middle of the night, <laughs> parked in a spot, never even saw it, and I parked within five feet of a decoy uh, deer, and I just ruined the whole operation. Uh, and oh, well. I, that's why I never fill any tags, because I'm just horrible at this. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you made some friends that evening. <laughs> no, I, I, they didn't even say hi. They just left. They just left. But uh, anyway, onward and upward. Okay, let's talk about sage-grouse. What's going on with sage-grouse over in Oregon? Is there a a season for sage-grouse this year? There is, but it just ended. Um, It's very limited, very limited opportunity for sage-grouse. As you know, we've had some fires, big fires that have really, and I think habitat is probably the number one issue. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, it's it's basically a controlled hunt, kind of like I was talking about for mule deer, for example. You're going to have to apply, and I think it was in July and, and closed in August. Mm-hmm. You apply for a permit, and they issue a certain amount of permits for a specific unit. Okay. So um, I think there was a few that were removed that will be removed in 2019. I think the Juniper unit was one of those where there will no longer be permits issued for that area. So there is opportunity out there. You just got to apply. And and from what I've seen in the past, I don't think all those permits are being being issued. So. 
All right. Well, let's take our last break, and then when we come back, there's just a few laws I want to clarify. And something interesting about our our shared states is uh, what we do when we're fishing or we're hunting on the Snake River, and that's the border. So we'll get to that right when we come back, okay? Okay. Carhartt makes gear to get you through anything. So D&B Supply offers a wide selection to outfit any day, any task, and any weather. Built to stand the test of time and have your back no matter what comes your way, Carhartt clothing keeps you comfortable all day long. And for extra hard jobs, check out Carhartt Force, the line that wicks sweat, fights odors, releases stains, and works as hard as you do. To outlast them all, get decked out in Carhartt at D&B. When it comes to legendary performance, only a few chainsaws make the cut, like the Husqvarna lineup available at D&B. Years of razor-sharp research led to many of Husqvarna's breakthrough technologies, including anti-vibration dampeners to reduce the impact on your arms and hands, plus a combined choke and stop control that makes the chainsaw easier to start. When you have your work cut out for you, get her done with a Husqvarna. Pick up one at your favorite D&B supply. All right, Lieutenant Schwartz. Well, so we've got waterfowl coming up here soon, and with big game hunting, this applies too. But there's several areas between Idaho and Oregon where the Snake River is the state boundary. So when it comes to hunting, when it comes to fishing, how do hunters in each state, how do they negotiate that between being legal in Oregon or legal in Idaho, but being on the river? How does that work? So for hunting, it's obviously, you know, if it's from a boat, that's one thing. But from the shore, you're either in Oregon or you're in in Idaho. It's very similar to to Washington and Oregon with the Columbia River. Um, Obviously, that one's quite a bit bigger when it comes to fishing. (laughs) But pretty much that's the same thing for fishing as well. So folks that are fishing from the shore of Idaho need to be licensed by Idaho. Folks that are fishing from the shore of Oregon need to be licensed by Oregon. Mm -hmm. Now we have reciprocity for the river itself for people that are on the water fishing, hunting from a boat where either license, the license of either state is valid. So there are some questions typically when it comes to um, the mouths of tributaries. Mm -hmm. And basically Oregon law says it's a straight across line across the tributary the mouth of the tributary, and that's pretty much the line between the Snake River or, you know, license of either state being valid, mm-hmm. and then having a, having a license in, in Oregon. And I think Idaho is pretty much the same thing. On the Columbia, I don't know if we had too many of these on the Snake, but on the Columbia at times there is differing regulations specifically for salmon and stuff like that on the Columbia. And that, that makes it a little bit more difficult when we have differing regulations and, and people are, you know, licensed by either state mm-hmm. and fish the entire river. So that gets that gets tough, and basically we just use the center of the river or the channel as kind of the dividing point. And like I said, I don't think we've had had to deal with that on the Snake River. I think pretty much the regulations are consistent. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when you're out fishing on the river, boating, uh, whatever, just make sure you have a license if if you're uh, <laughs> if you're fishing. Okay. So. And then how would that apply to islands? Islands that gets a little bit trickier, but basically those islands are either Oregon or Idaho, the same. It's going to be kind of the responsibility of you know, the person fishing or hunting from that island to know where they're at. And obviously we use discretion in, in our enforcement of that. Mm-hmm. It's not one of those things where we just walk up and, oh, you're on an Oregon island, you need to have a license and right. give somebody a ticket for that. We obviously talk to them about that and, and make an appropriate decision based upon that. Well, I wanted to ask you about trespass laws in Oregon as well. That's a, kind of a hot button topic over here in Idaho where I live, and we had some changes with it this year. Can you explain to us how trespass works both for hunting and then also for fishing? If you're fishing in a, in a stream, if you're standing in the stream versus in a boat on private property, all of that. Yeah, so trespass laws for hunting, uh, it's pretty simple. If, it, if it's private property, you need to have permission. 
to hunt on that private property. And also it's unlawful to hunt, you know, on the cultivated land. So, you know, somebody's field uh, or enclosed land, something that's fenced and so on. And, and it doesn't typically have to be a fence or, you know, an agricultural field. It could be a road that kind of splits property. It could be, uh, you know, some kind of barricade, uh, something that shows that obviously you're coming onto private property from public or that you're going across from one private property to the next. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically you have permission. It's lawful to, to go on there. If you don't have permission, you can't. There is some, you know, some folks that think that if they shoot an animal on public property or property they have permission to, and it runs across after they've shot it and, you know, expires on private property that they have a right to go retrieve that animal. Mm-hmm. That's not the case here in Oregon. They still need to have permission. Um, there are some common law, uh, case law that would maybe come into effect there, but as a whole, they need to get permission from that landowner before they access. Just because the animal goes on there doesn't mean they can just walk over there and grab it. So I would tell folks that if, if a situation like that occurs, give us a shout. We can come out there and, uh, you know, talk with the landowner and then go out and investigate and make sure that, yeah, they did shoot it on public land and mm-hmm. followed the blood trail or tracked it onto private and this is what took place. And a lot of times those landowners will will allow us to accompany the hunter in there to retrieve the animal. And are there any requirements on the part of the landowner for the way they mark their property or anything like that? They don't have to mark it. They don't have to put up signs. Obviously that, that helps, Yeah. you know, to, there, there's some BLM land up where I hunt and there's some landlocked private land that's under trust or whatever. And, uh, there is nothing that tells you that that's private property, you know, and obviously when, you know, if that landowner is going to give us a call, those are some things that we look into and we go out there and make sure that, well, there's really no way for a hunter to know that he's going from public to private. Mm-hmm. There is a higher expectation nowadays. You've got a lot of technology from GPSs to Onyx, these things that will tell you the location or the landowner of the land you're on using GPS, obviously. So there's an expectation that, you know, folks know where they're hunting. And, and for the most part, it doesn't happen very often where people accidentally cross on the private property. Mm-hmm. Most of our trespass cases are people that are blatantly, you know, driving through gates or going around gates and, going into obvious private property. Well, let me ask you about another big one, and that is ATVs and motorcycles. How can they, or are they even able to be incorporated into hunting in Oregon? Oh, yeah. Most, we have a lot of BLM land, especially southeast Oregon, uh, where ATVs are allowed. Don't recommend cross-country travel. In the Forest Service, they have different regulations for ATVs. Some roads are open for them, established roads. Uh, some are closed for ATVs. So they can't be used on some of those roads. Uh, we have wildlife areas. We have travel management areas. That's, you know, cooperation between the state and the federal government, or it might be state lands where a lot of ATVs are just flat out unlawful. Mm-hmm. And then we have a lot of private property that are part of our access and habitat program, especially on the west side where it's closed to all motorized travel. They close those gates, they leave them closed, and they want to provide opportunity for folks that want to walk in and, you know, come back on the disturbance of the wildlife as well. So they can be used. It's just important that folks check the regulations for the land in which they want to use it on because there is some differences, especially between BLM and and the Forest Service as well as as the state. All right. And let's talk about orange for a second. Is wearing orange while you're hunting in the state of Oregon, is that a requirement for every hunter? No, that's one thing where Oregon is quite different than a lot of other states is if you're over 18, it is not required at all, even during our rifle deer seasons, elk seasons, 
So you don't have to wear orange. You can wear camouflage. You can go out there and whatever you want. It is a requirement for 17 and under mm-hmm. that they have a hunter orange garment. That could be a hat, could be a vest. Um, and that applies to big game hunting as well as, as, as uh, bird hunting. And then shooting hours. That's always interesting how different states define them differently. What are, what are the legal definitions of shooting hours in Oregon? So for, for a big game, um, it's a half hour before sunrise to half hour after sunset. Uh, we don't have a set time for a big game. Obviously, that changes throughout the year and mm-hmm. so on. So it's basically just a half hour after those points. Uh, for birds, it's a little bit different. We do have a table in our in our game bird regulations that says exactly when you can hunt and when you have to stop okay. for different zones throughout the state, obviously. And then there are some differing regulations for like the Northwest Goose Zone where there are tables in there too, but basically it's an hour after sunrise. And then one last question about unprotected species or varmints or predators, like people who like to go coyote hunting and things like that. Uh, is a license required in Oregon to be able to hunt these animals? Yes, it's required. There's a couple of different ones. There's a, a hunting license for fur bears that covers uh, basically typically animals that trappers will go after. You can do that to take those animals or just get a hunting license. With most of those, they're un- unprotected, so there's no bag limit or anything on those. And, mm-hmm. and those are clearly specified in our regulations of what animals are unprotected and what animals are not, obviously. So, Just a wealth of information, Lieutenant Schwartz. I really appreciate it. I hope uh, for uh, Oregon State Police, hunting season goes very, very smoothly, and I hope everybody in Oregon has a great hunting season. Thank you for helping us out with this with this today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the opportunity. And I would just tell the public that if they come across a violation, no matter how small, to give us a shout. A lot of times uh, folks will think, well, there's probably nobody in the area. So calling in really won't do any good. And, you know, you never know when we're right around the corner or not right down the road. And uh, regardless, if they see something suspicious, uh, something doesn't seem right, you know, however small, just to give us a call and uh, let us know what's going on. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today, and here is to you and your pursuit of the country lifestyle, however you define it. For the DNB Show, I'm Matt Breckwald.